there's a tendency when we're talking about narratives of of female empowerment to want historical figures to be wholly good or wholly villainous. And I think there's not always enough opportunity to look at people who maybe, you know, it's a bit more of a gray area, perhaps like they're complicated. They did some things that we can admire. Maybe some things are not so admirable. To me, that wasn't really an issue. They were still fascinating figures. I'm Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. Every other week, I talk with artists who are also mothers and caregivers about their postpartum creative process. You can find out more about the podcast at www.postpartumproduction.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Emily Midorikawa is the author of Out of the Shadows, Six Visionary Victorian Women in Search of a Public Voice, published by Counterpoint Press. Emily is also the co-author of A Secret Sisterhood, The Literary Friendships of Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, George Eliot, and Virginia Woolf, written with Emma Claire Sweeney and published in 2017. Emily's the winner of the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize. Her journalism has appeared in the Paris Review, Time, The Times of London, The Washington Post, and more. She teaches in the writing program at New York University, London. Emily and I actually have been connected virtually for almost a decade, and I followed her writing career with interest. I had the privilege of reading Out of the Shadows before we spoke. As a fiction writer, I'm not always well-versed in biographies like this work, but I found myself immersed in Emily's storytelling style and subjects especially in light of recent political events that attack women's rights from a number of angles. She spoke with me at length about the women she covered in her book today and alluded to some theories she has about how their circumstances enabled them to find platforms for expression, as well as her process of creating the book while pregnant with both children. I've edited this conversation down a bit, but you can hear the whole episode in the show notes. It's so nice to talk to you today, Emily, and I wanted to hear a bit about your transition from the work that you were doing previously with The Secret Sisterhood and that book to the book that you have now. And also, I know that I'm kind of curious the chronology because I know that somewhere in the middle, you became a mother. And so I was curious like where that happened, when that happened, and how that all intersected. Like When you're looking back on those pieces of the past few years, like what that looks like. I and a writer friend of mine, Emma Claire Sweeney, were running a blog called somethingrhymed.com, which started in 2014. It was a blog about female literary friendship. So every month we would profile friendship between two usually famous, usually historical female writers who had supported each other in some way. We would write a post about that and maybe some accompanying posts as well, sort of exploring ideas around the friendship. Then from that beginning, somethingrhyme.com, the blog. Well, Emma and I ended up writing a book, A Secret Sisterhood, which was also about female literary friendship. So rather than having very short chapters that kind of just replicated what we'd done on the blog, we focused on the friendships for extremely well-known female writers. So Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, George Eliot, and Virginia Woolf, and kind of really dug into those friendships. So it's a Greek biography that really focused on those four. And that book came out in 2017. After that, I started researching another book, which would eventually become Out of the Shadows, Six Visionary Victorian Women in Search of a Public Voice, which is about a group of remarkable Victorian celebrities who became famous 
because of their supposed ability, depending on how you look at it, to contact the dead. So they were spirit mediums effectively. But what was interesting to me was in the case of the four women I looked at, they all used that platform as spirit mediums or well-known spiritualists to go on to do other things. So one of the women, Victoria Woodhull, was the first woman who ran to be the president of the United States. Another woman was a very famous orator who was famous for giving speeches apparently in a trance. Another woman actually ended up, Georgina Weldon, she was someone who was almost put away in an asylum because of her beliefs, but then went on to become a campaigner against the sort of archaic lunacy laws of the era. So basically, when I started researching that book, I was not pregnant, although I think I probably wanted to be. And in the early stages of sort of research and writing on the book, or writing sort of the first draft of the book at the same time as I was pregnant, I went on a research trip to, well, I obviously did various research trips, but one was quite an extensive one to the United States when I was pregnant. It was quite interesting because when I'd done research trips in the past, I sort of really crammed in huge stints in libraries and not kind of really thought about my health. And this time I kind of had to think, I want to get all this work done. I want to see all the papers I want to look at. I'm also looking after another person inside me. So I have to take new things into account. And then I finished the first draft and then my daughter was born. And then I was sort of working on the book, obviously goes through edits and that sort of thing. And then the book actually finally ended up coming out just before my next child, Dylan, was born. So I'd become pregnant twice through the process of writing the book. So for me, you know, the book is very much sort of tied in with the experience of giving birth to two children, a daughter, Lola, and a son, Dylan. And it's very hard for me to think about the two things as separate. They're very, very kind of intertwined, the experience of producing a book and producing two babies, I guess. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that first draft you said came or you finished right before you gave birth or? Yeah. So I finished it. I sort of had this idea in my head. I must finish this draft before (laughs) um, my daughter is born. And luckily she was a couple of weeks late, which meant I was actually able to do it. (laughs) So I sort of finished the draft that I did have like a few days when I managed to sort of regroup a bit. Then I had her, obviously I had a bit of time off after actually giving birth, but I was quite keen to sort of get back to it in some way relatively, I think earlier than I think people expected. But, you know, I did have a deadline by which the book was supposed to be coming up and all the edits and everything associated with that. I also felt, obviously, initially after giving birth, I was very kind of absorbed in my new baby. But that creative part of me, it still continued. Of course, the first few weeks are overwhelming. But after that, you know, I was thinking about the book, even if I wasn't actually sort of working on it in a sort of sitting at my desk way. I was thinking about things could be changed, ways I could do things differently. I am curious, and maybe this relates in some way, especially because this book particularly is so, to me at least, it felt really personal, not personal to you, but personal to the women that you're featuring and personal to their stories. And there was so much detail, so much vivid and just real. I mean, I felt like I was just right there with them in their own journey. And so I'm curious, well, A, how you came to the subject matter to begin with and where you learned about them and why you started to build this work. So the idea for the book, I think as with many things with writing, it came from a previous bit of writing that I was doing. So as I mentioned before, my previous book was A Secret Sisterhood, 
when I was working on that book, I was in the New York Public Library in one of their sort of locked research rooms reading letters from Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, of course, who was friends with George Eliot. And I was there for several days transcribing these letters, which were not always that easy to read because, you know, her handwriting was quite full of sort of flourishes and things like that. But in the process of doing that, there was a letter where she mentioned an experience that she had had at a seance. And Harriet Beecher Stowe was very much a believer in all of that sort of thing. George Eliot, I have to say, a lot more sceptical. You can tell from the way that she replies to these letters that she's not really buying everything that Stowe says. But in this particular letter, Stowe talks about being at a seance with a young spirit medium called Kate Fox. And she sort of conjures this image of Fox sitting sort of in a dark room. It's quite a sort of cosy setting. There's not loads of people there. It's dark room and these sort of mysterious phosphorescent lights glowing all around Kate. So I just thought this was kind of wonderful image. And Stowe also described Kate Fox as in a sort of almost like an otherworldly way. She comes across almost as a sprite-like kind of presence. So this is all just quite fascinating to me. The other thing that really struck me was that the way that Stowe spoke about Fox made it clear that she expected George Eliot to know who this woman was. Mm. And it was interesting to me that Eliot, a British woman on the other side of the ocean, would have a sense of who a spirit medium in the US would be. So that kind of gave me a sense, oh, this woman was obviously very famous in her day, like even though I didn't really know about her. This sort of area was a little bit out of the way of the sort of thing I wanted to be talking about in A Secret Sisterhood. So I had to sort of this part of the letter and just sort of focus on things that were a bit more relevant. But once I stopped working on A Secret Sisterhood, I went back to my notes because this episode kept playing in my mind, found out about more about Kate Fox, realized she was part of a trio of spirit medium sisters, the Fox sisters, who were extremely well known in their day, would pack out concert halls with people, mass seances where people would come and see what they were doing. They were sort of in the papers all the time, much discussed, famous people sort of beating a path to their door to kind of experience things for themselves. And in researching the Fox sisters, I started to learn about other spirit mediums and other famous spiritualists of the era. They weren't all women, but I was particularly interested in women who were doing this because it struck me as a way that women were actually able to sort of get a public voice through doing this in many cases in a way that perhaps wasn't open in many other arenas. And then, as I say, I started to become interested in women who had used this as a platform to go on to do other sort of fascinating things. There's a lot of different narratives that you work with and that you weave together in the book and how you were able to piece together like the trajectory of each of their personal lives, their careers. Yeah. So I had mapped out the basic shape of the book before, like right at the start of the writing process, which I think is something you often do with nonfiction because you often try and sell your book on a proposal rather than a finished product. So that was helpful. I at least had a map of where I was going. Of course, I think, you know, as soon as you're working on a second draft, you start to think, oh, actually, I need to go back and find out more about that. And it's often not just small things. There's often, you know, I need to revamp this chapter. and It's quite substantial extra research. But as it turned out, it was really good that I did this because not only was there the issue of having a baby and not being able to get access to as many sort of places because of that, not being able to travel as much, 
quite soon after that, we of course got into the pandemic and many libraries and museums closed their doors. Eventually, you know, some archivists went back to work and I was able to access some documents remotely. But I do remember thinking, if this hadn't been done already, if I'd left this till this point, I don't know if I could have finished this book because this was this really unforeseen thing that I hadn't planned for. You know, I'd planned for all the things, you know, sharing childcare with my husband, but, you know, obviously the pandemic, none of us we're expecting that. So that was another thing that was I felt very fortunate on. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about how that would have impacted researchers during that time period. Wow. Yeah, I think for people sort of starting off on a project, you know, particularly if they'd already sold the book, you know, on the idea, it must mm-hmm. have been quite difficult. And then your question about how I managed to hold things together. So I guess, yeah, having this draft and this map prior to that that I could work with was really helpful. Right from the beginning, I'd made the decision I wanted to write this book you know, not as a sort of academic text, as it were, that I wanted to write it as quite sort of narrative driven nonfiction, obviously backed up by facts, but I wanted to bring an element of storytelling to the way that I presented the stories. I mean, I think in a way their lives were so full of twists and turns and you couldn't really make these stories up. I think so many strange things happen. So many things that you just felt if this was in a novel, you just think it was an unrealistic twist. In a way, this is sort of a gift to a nonfiction writer because you're able to go to those places that you wouldn't in fiction. And, you know, they were very kind of entertaining women to write about. And I'm always interested, I think, in a Greek biography, just seeing the way that the paths of the different characters, you know, their stories are separate, but they also intertwine. And I'm always interested to see how that happens. Mm. And how they intertwine with historical moments was really fascinating to me as well. And how, I mean, honestly, perhaps I am not giving women of that time enough credit, but just how powerful they really could be within the scope of, like you said, of what they were able to do, right? And how they utilized the tools, whether or not they were falsified or they were <laughs> they were real capabilities, that they were able to really gain such power and then to kind of, like you said, to either be running for president or the sisters who were running their own investment houses and getting involved with a number of New York landed elite and then those in the UK. I mean, it just, it was really fascinating for me also to not had a lot, I'm granted, I'm not a historian, but just to not know of those stories at all, like you said, that those weren't that clearly that George Eliot and Harriet Beecher Stowe knew of them, and yet they didn't continue to be common household names, at least, and why. I was fascinated by all of that, and I was riveted. I mean, I was unfortunately because of the PDF I was reading it on my phone, which I also read a lot on my phone right now. So I was like, oh, this is tiny. Hopefully I didn't do damage to my eyes. But it was really fun to read while I was actually nursing my baby and doing a whole number of other things. So it was really nice. I did have to that, and though I do have some questions about how you found whether or not how like these stories resonated for you personally, because I think there was a lot of mention of their powers, in a sense, and how men specifically reacted to those powers, or how different cultural institutions at the time reacted to those powers. And given where we are right now, you know, I'm curious to hear you talk about how their stories matter to you, both as a mother to a daughter, as a woman in this era. I was curious about that. Well, like you say, I was fascinated, like to the extent that they had been able to have social and cultural influence time when we often think of women as having, and often actually rightly, of having very little influence on the public stage at all. Now, of course, it is complicated by the fact that unless you wholeheartedly believe that what they were doing was contacting the dead, 
then you're sort of thinking, well, these people are, they're lying at least part of the time. And I think honestly with these women like even the sort of the most ardent believer in their talents if you look at for instance different accounts they gave of the same incident over the years often sort of wildly different stories of course memory doesn't stay fully intact but it's hard to just think that they were always like 100% honest about things you know in some cases they were also just kind of caught out trying to trick people so that does complicate things a little bit and I think perhaps in a way that explains why they aren't really as well remembered today as we might expect because I think there's a tendency to when we're talking about sort of narratives of of female empowerment to want historical figures to be wholly good or wholly villainous and I think there's not always enough opportunity to look at people who maybe you know it's a bit more of a gray area perhaps like they're complicated they did some things that we can admire maybe some things are not so admirable. To me, that wasn't really an issue. They were still fascinating figures. Initially, like I tried to go into this with an open mind, even though I'm not a spiritualist myself. I tried, I thought when I sat down to write this, I thought I should not go in thinking, oh, all of this is is just rubbish. I should try and be open-minded because I think that will allow me to sort of write about these scenes like in a more involved way. And I tried to keep that open-mindedness throughout the process, although I did offer alternative explanations whenever I could for what you know might be going on here if it's not quite the way that they're presenting it. So I did try to be open-minded throughout this process. But in the end, I felt like it was less important to me to sort of focus in on this question of whether they were charlatans or all-out heroines. I eventually just kind of just came to the decision like they were complicated and I need to leave some space really for my readers to, you know, make their own decisions. I'll fill in as much as I can, but they can look at the material and decide for themselves. But I was much more interested in the end. Yeah, as you say, in the achievements that these women managed to make in an era when there was all these really severe constraints on them. Mm, Yeah. I mean, as you said, I think what's most telling is how the world within their particular circles and societies reacted to who they were. And that gives a lens into, you know, how women were seen then. And I think for me, it got me thinking a lot about the various, and again, I am not a historian, so I don't come to this with a lot of grounding, but from my own perspective, it felt like we see women, whether it's in the Salem witch trials, we see midwives, we see granny midwives, as they were called in the South, in the US, all the way up to like, AOC in US politics right now, or Hillary, you could say Hillary Clinton, I think, seeing powerful women as a challenge to the patriarchy. And I think that that was very clear in this work that these women were doing something that was challenging very much so the structural constraints that, you know, that were holding women back. And you saw the way in which they interacted with Susan B. Anthony, or you're saying Harriet Beecher Stowe, like all of these prominent women in American and in British society. I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on that or how, as you were working on the book now, like, were there ever moments where you thought like, oh, I'm seeing that or just like reading something that they wrote and feeling like, have we gotten as far as we need to be? Or what can we learn from these stories to take into the modern era? I think one of the women that I write about Emma Harding Britain is sort of particularly interesting in this way. So she was a British woman who actually arrived in, she'd been a stage performer, a musician and stage performer 
in London on the West End stage. She originally came over to America to take up a position with a company on Broadway. This didn't really work out for various reasons. She kind of seemed to not get on very well with the manager of the theatre. It just didn't work out. But while she was there, became quite interested in spiritualism. She had apparently been aware or felt that she had clairvoyant abilities from childhood many years prior to this, but her arrival in New York City really it coincided with a sort of explosion of interest in this sort of thing. The Fox sisters were already very famous by then. So she ended up becoming a spirit medium herself. And then particularly interesting to me, she ended up becoming a trance lecturer. So she would give these speeches supposedly in a trance. But the fact that she was either in a trance or presenting herself as being in a trance was actually quite handy to her in some ways, because many of these speeches were very, very controversial. And it would have been quite difficult for a woman of that era to get up and talk about, say, abolition. She was for it. Politics generally, you know, greater rights for women, something that was even more sort of, quote unquote, unsavory. And the treatment of what she would have called fallen women, women working as prostitutes. You know, these were very unladylike topics. They're not very nice to see a woman up on stage talking about these things. But because she was able to sort of present her words as being, she's just channeling the thoughts of dead spirits, and they were usually dead male spirits as well. Then that sort of allowed us the opportunity to say things that she wouldn't normally have been able to see. Now, I, we don't know what her own thinking on this was. I mean, perhaps she realized what she was doing and she realized this was a good front. I also kind of wondered whether, and there's obviously, a, there is that possibility. But I wondered if perhaps the topics she were talking about, they were so sort of controversial. It might have been difficult to her to admit even to herself that she was thinking these thoughts for herself. So possibly, you know, it was her subconscious at work, something, you know, wasn't very well understood at the time. So I thought that was a possibility. Then she, you know, she became famous for giving speeches in a trance, but in a way she became just as famous for being a woman up on stage on her own. That was seen as just as novel, really. People would, yes, queue up to see someone speaking, you know, channeling the thoughts of dead spirits. But she was also just as famed as a female orator because that was just, you know, something people didn't see either. So famous, in fact, that she was asked to get involved with the campaign to re-elect Abraham Lincoln. And in fact, after he was assassinated, she was the person who gave the first sort of big commemoration, a big speech in New York City commemorating the life of the dead president. So I think particularly when we think, you know, this is a, a woman, a British woman, so a relatively recent immigrant to the US, that she was able to have that kind of platform really struck me as just quite amazing. And the fact that she had to do it in this kind of strange way, well, you're working with the system that you're part of. She wouldn't have really been afforded this opportunity if she'd just come about it in a more straightforward way. Right. Gosh, that's so fascinating. I'm glad you mentioned that because I hadn't thought about the power of that within that particular moment, as well as how we as individuals use particular platforms to speak in the ways that we can and whether or not, you know, again, I'm trying to extrapolate ways in which that can be utilized now, right? Like how individual activists can potentially, I mean, it is very, yeah, at that moment, obviously very activist. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. In some ways, our world is very, very different from the 19th mm -hmm. century. But as you say, there are parallels as well. And I think the constraints on women today are different, clearly, but they are still constraints. And this idea of sort of just trying to work with the situation that you have, I think 
there are, are definitely interesting parallels that you can draw between these women and women campaigning on all sorts of issues today. I think that's where, for me, reading these stories, it felt both inspiring in many ways and then also kind of depressing, right, to think that clearly that there's a lot of time that has passed and while a lot obviously has changed when you think about the, the particular constraints at that time versus now. But I think especially, you know, you're thankfully, I guess, in many ways across the pond, but over here in the U.S., like there's a lot of work that still obviously that now we're kind of even having more work to do to get to where we were. I think that point was what struck me with the most resonance about this book. That while we've made immense strides to create a more equitable world for women, that so many of the structural imbalances still exist a century or more later. I'm curious for listeners what strikes you as most parallel to the current struggles, especially those facing writers and artists who are perhaps working outside the bounds of what's seen as appropriate to artistic traditions. I had a quote that I wanted to mention. It was Susan B. Anthony. And it speaks, I guess, perhaps it's a bit repetitive based on what we were just talking about. But that Susan, there's a quote where it says, Susan left 44 Broad Street feeling a great throb of pleasure and brimming with hope for better times to come for women, times when they shall vote the right to put food into their mouths and money into their pockets without asking men's leave. And it had me thinking about, again, I think we've already... This was a thought I had prior to this conversation, but just in terms of the ways in which these women did have real political power and were really activists in a time when we think, at least historically, you look at Susan B. Anthony and she's held at a certain level of esteem and caliber, whereas these women, as you've mentioned, sort of are dabbling with things that feel a bit less legitimate in many ways, right? When you, both at that time and now. I was thinking also throughout the book, and I think this does relate to motherhood and to parenting and to the experience of postpartum, of spiritualism and women and intuition and the ways in which these women, like you mentioned that Emma felt like she was always clairvoyant, like whether or not you felt like there was a link there, or if you even as a parent, you know, as a mother have had moments where or seen things in your children where like, you felt like there was something unique to the experience of even early postpartum, like, I'm really curious about the brain and the transitions. And I know some of these women were mothers themselves, and some weren't. But I think also just like, you know, it's tricky. And you talk about that even here as well, in terms of like, you can go down very, very dangerous paths in terms of eugenics and like women's brains and not. And so there's like, obviously a slippery slope there. But I also at the same time think there's certain power in whether it is female experiences, or there's just, I don't know how to unpack that. You know, I think you obviously have, have been steeped in this particular literature, but I was curious if that had come up especially in so far as it relates to, yeah, like intuitive knowledge and the validity of that and it working against what at the time feels like a much more patriarchal Western scientific medical tradition of thought and of inquiry and of validity really of experience. I think it's really interesting that you brought that up because before, when I was pregnant with my daughter Lola, but before I'd given birth, I think people can often be quite discouraging. I think, you know, not necessarily with bad intentions, but they can, a lot of people said things to me like, so on the one hand, you have this idea of, you know, mother's instincts and that sort of thing. And that's all good. You know, you'll know how to look after your baby, for instance. But 
People also, I felt like, and this would be in books that I read, you know, sort of books about how to care for a baby, but also, you know, just the advice of friends and family. A lot of people said to me, as I say, I don't think it was with bad intentions. They'd say things like, oh, once your baby comes, well, firstly, you're not going to have time for anything other than looking after the baby. You'll never have time to read a book, for instance, (laughs) which, you know, to me was extremely depressing, partly because I love reading, but also because I knew I'd have to read many, many books in order to finish the book that I was writing. (laughs) And there's often an idea, I think, that, yes, your mother's instinct will expand, But in other ways, your brain will sort of almost contract and, you know, you'll kind of be hazy about everything and you'll be able to focus on your child and kind of nothing else. I don't know whether you found people sort of giving that kind of advice. I mean, obviously, after you've given birth, like often there's an issue with like massive sleep deprivation and things like that. So I can sort of see what people are talking about. And I'm not saying like there weren't moments where I'd find I was kind of forgetful about things that I wouldn't have been before. And I put a lot of that down to just, you know, not sleeping a a full unbroken night's sleep anymore. But in other ways, you know, I felt like obviously I'm not an expert on the brain, so I can't really sort of talk about this in a particularly scientific way. But I felt the experience of having given birth did sort of change me in terms of my way of thinking. It opened up my mind in, in all sorts of new ways. Partly, sometimes just as simple as seeing the world, I suppose, for your child's eyes for the first time and it bringing like a new sense of wonder. But I felt it kind of did affect my creative process as well. You know, I felt like in a way I was sort of like with my book, I felt like I was able to have like a clearer sort of wider sense of what I wanted it to be. I don't know whether that's partly to do with sort of sifting out things that feel unimportant because, you know, you have such limited time when you've a new parent. Yeah, I felt like a lot of the advice I I got before I gave birth was quite discouraging. And I've always tried to be more encouraging to other mothers, particularly mothers who are sort of creative and are perhaps worried about how this is going to affect their work. Like, yes, of course, your time is curtailed and there are things that are like not as great. There's things that you would have not thought twice about going and doing before you had kids. And now you have to sort of schedule it in in this really complicated way. But in other ways... Yeah, it totally changed my way of thinking and the way I approach my work. And in that sense, I feel like it was really good for my creativity. I don't know if you felt something similar or... Well, I started this podcast, so clearly... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I believe that there's possibility there. Like you said, I think the frustration lies for me in... And I think the lack of sleep and the lack of... I mean, I think all of that is just a lack of support. I mean, we are living on these islands that are not... Like biologically, we aren't meant to parent in this way. And all of the frustration and all of the challenges that our children then face as a result. And all of that is just because we don't have support. And I know like for me personally, I was just talking to my husband about this last night. It's like, we always have to rely on, okay, who are we going to hire? Okay, well then I have to take on this extra work to try. Okay, well, I have to be thinking about, well, if I'm, if I need to do this, you know, just these mental calculations around really the capitalism of childcare, not the actuality of it. And because whether, I mean, there's so much to unpack there as well of like having children later in life and not having family or, you know, or not the way in which we all live different lives. And also obviously the constraints of capitalism. And I'm saying this from someone who I know I have massive amounts of privilege across the board and I still feel those challenges. So it's like just an inkling of what is really clearly structurally a problem in the U.S. The point of that is just that I think those postpartum warnings I think like you said, I think they discount the possibilities of motherhood. And as a result, I mean, they're really fear-based, right? And they're not supportive instead of saying, oh, well, this can be a challenge. And therefore, 
here are the things that worked for me to have a more supported postpartum and parenting experience, right? Like what would that look like? I think that's true. And I think also, although there are some aspects of being a mother that are quite universal, we're all individuals and, you know, our circumstances are different and, you know, what we want in life and projects that we're on are all completely different. So I think often when people do give advice, like it's perhaps not thinking quite enough about the fact that this other mother or parent's experience might be quite different from your own. And like perhaps some of the things that you're saying might not really transfer across because other aspects of our lives are completely different. So why wouldn't the mothering experience also be quite different? Right. No, that's a really good point. I was curious when you mentioned that the way in which you saw your project changed or that there was a different sense of your relationship to the work that you had done prior to having your first child and how that became this book. I'm curious about whether or not you're able to dig in there a little bit and be a little more specific around what that looked like. I think after I gave birth to Lola, there was a period after that where I was recovering from having given birth, but also I'd already decided I'm going to take like the summer. She was born in June and I was going to take sort of the summer months off and then kind of come back to the book initially in a limited way and then a more intensive way from the autumn, as we'd say. And over that period, I think I wasn't working on the book, but I was thinking about it all the time. And I think prior to that, I was rushing to sort of get this first draft together. And I was, you know, trying to make sure I've got all this research done. I've got to include this bit. I've got to include this part of the story. It was partly just having like time to breathe. But I do also think it was kind of, you know, looking at the world with new eyes. So then also looking at the creative project I was working on with new eyes. It really made me sort of think, what is it I really want to say in this book? I knew I wanted to talk about women speaking in public. But that sort of really kind of came out as a theme in a much, much more pronounced way over the summer when I guess like perhaps I wasn't getting the chance to use my own voice as much as I had before, because initially when you become a mother, of course, people are really interested in your new baby and and that, but you almost become like quite subsumed by that identity. So I felt like whenever I've got in conversation with people, not not everyone, but a lot of people, all they want to talk to you about is the child. You know, you're very excited about the child, but it's not like the entirety of your world. You know, I wasn't getting the chance really to talk that much about my book to people. I was thinking a lot just to myself about what is it I really want to say. And I guess this idea of voice, being able to talk, you know, this really being the thing that linked these stories together. Um, yeah, just became like very much more solidified in my mind. And so although I had had a map of the book before, now I could see the pathways between the different stories in new ways. And I just kind of, the book was still, you know, there was much, much more work to do on it, but I did have a much more full sense of the project then. And I could kind of really see where it was going to go. You know, of course, from that stage on, there's still like lots of pitfalls and missteps and things like that. But I think for the first time, I was really able to see it really clearly. Yeah, in some way, I do link that, I think, to having given birth and just looking at everything in a different way. Where I felt like as I was reading the book, I and maybe this is because I now have a connection to you more personally, but I was really excited getting through the stories of each of the particular spiritualists and then to hear your it felt like Emily's voice finally get a little bit of a stage right towards the end in the in remembrance section. I was really eager for it and I was really happy. I felt really relieved that I got to hear a bit of Emily's take on all of these stories. So I was, yeah, I was grateful for that. And I just wanted to share that too. 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, so I say, like, as I was writing the other sections, I did sort of, obviously, you know, I have my own opinions, but I did often feel like I should offer alternative explanations, but I should also stand back. You know, I don't really always like books where everything is like, you know, sort of, obviously there's time and a place for this kind of thing, but I didn't feel this book would really work as sort of a polemic, you know, that kind of, the author just like, because, you know, I just felt it would be crowding out the other stories. But I did obviously want to say something at the end, so there was a way of finishing things up. And in a way, like, I suppose, obviously, you go through a kind of redrafting process where you sort of like seed some of those ideas in in a more fluid way. But I guess these were ideas that had been building all the time that I had been drafting. And then like, it was nice to get the chance to, yeah, just give more of a sense perhaps of what I thought right at the end. Mm, Yeah. Anyways, it felt like such a nice container moment. And it just, I really appreciated having a glimpse into your relationship to the texts as a whole too, because you had spent that time with them so much so that I could imagine that it just felt like a sense of really nice closure within the work. So it was, yeah, it was much appreciated as a reader. So I bounced around. I do these sort of closing questions and I have, I'll ask you all three actually, since you're closing out our podcast. The idea is just to Speaking of intuition and just responding as quickly as possible without doing too much thinking. So the first is, what is postpartum? So postpartum to me, an explosion of change, constant change. Do you want me to elaborate on that? No, no, that is perfect. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you think so. I'm often like quite bad at these like quick fire questions. No, that was was great. That was great. What is productivity? You're a very productive person. What is productivity? Productivity is, I guess it's feeling fulfilled. It's not always about producing like the biggest number of words or filing the biggest number of articles or it's not always something that can be measured in very sort of concrete material terms that you could report to a literary agent or editor in a way that would impress them. But I guess like I feel like productivity for me, like creative productivity is going well when I feel like a sense of fulfillment that the work that I'm doing it's good that I'm happy with it for the stage that mm-hmm. it's at. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that, actually, because I personally struggle a lot with that, which is why this is called the Postpartum Production Podcast, because I think that we tend to look at productivity a very particular way. And maybe this is very American of me, but just this like American capitalist model. And you make me realize that, for example, this week I was working on an essay and there was like a sentence in it where I'm like, oh, I actually really like I'm that fulfilled me. That gave me a lot of juice. That's a great sentence, even if it's just at the sentence level, right? Or the word choice level. I mean, don't get me wrong. I often don't think of productivity like this. You know, I fall into the (laughs) trap of doing exactly what you're saying. But when I really think about it with hindsight afterwards, I don't feel I've been at my most productive. For instance, you know, when a book comes out, you know, you might just find you suddenly have to file loads of loads of articles and you send them all off. And, you know, that's good. You made all your deadlines, but that doesn't always make me feel as fulfilled as a situation like Mm. what you're just Mm -hmm. describing. Even though, you know, to an outsider, it might seem like you've not really done that much. You know, it, these are the moments that kind of I think you live for as creative. Mm-hmm. Right. What's where you like just you find that exact way of expressing yourself that feels exactly right for that particular work or that particular moment or experience. And it's not unique to writing. I'm sure I know we're both writers, but I know that I'm sure feels 
exactly that way. If you're a sculptor or you're a painter, or you're a photographer, right? Where you just like, yes, that's it. <laughs> Mic drop, like I'm done. Well, to that end too. So the last question is, it's similar actually, interestingly, which I wouldn't have expected, but what is creativity? It's about expressing a part of yourself that perhaps doesn't come out in any other way. So this wouldn't necessarily be totally confined to writing. So the thing that I do as my profession, like I think we can be creative in other ways as well, um, perhaps not in a really achievement focused way. Like, you know, for instance, I, I really enjoy dancing. This is not something that I've ever done professionally. It's not something I'm going to make a career of. You know, I feel like when I'm at a dance class and I feel sort of in tune with the music, I feel like I'm sort of being creative doing something like that. And I suppose like an activity like that, it does allow me to express a part of myself that doesn't come out in conversation with people, doesn't come out you know, um, in other activities that I do. I guess that's the same with writing as well. Yeah, even if the things you're writing about are things you might talk to other people about, that there's still something that's very sort of focused on that particular medium. Otherwise, you know, why put it down in words, in printed words or, or words on a screen, if it could come out in a different way? That's really relevant too, because one thing I've been exploring in this podcast, even though, as you said, I mean, we're both writers and we use a particular medium. I've really been enjoying the conversations that I've had with practitioners from all spectrums. And it's even getting me to think a little bit more in terms of the future of this podcast. And like, I'm in San Francisco, there's a lot of entrepreneurship. Like I think about even just innovation. There's so many different ways in which we are creative and how that balances also in the world when you are caregiving at the same time, right? And so I'm trying to envision other ways to reframe that. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's a helpful way of thinking for me too. So thanks. Thanks for that. In Emily's book, one of the main characters, Victoria, says, I claim that freedom means to be free. This quote really struck me in relation to so much activism currently in our world, and especially as it pertains to the struggle artist mothers face. I'd love to hear from listeners about what this quote means to you and how it relates to your work. I encourage you to check out Emily Medorikawa's book. Again, it's called Out of the Shadows, Six Visionary Victorian Women in Search of a Public Voice. You can find her work on emilymedorikawa.com, and that's E-M-I-L-Y-M-I-D-O-R-I-K-A-W-A.com. She's on Instagram at Emily and on Twitter at Emily Midorikawa. I'm your host, Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. This will help us reach more listeners like you who are navigating the joys and pitfalls of artistic and parenting identities. For regular updates, visit our website, postpartumproduction.com, follow us on Instagram at Postpartum Production Podcast, and subscribe to our podcast newsletter on Substack. Thank you for listening, and we are so grateful to have you with us on this journey. Postpartum may feel like forever, and sometimes it may feel very lonely, but you're not alone here. <laughs>